But you, you could look back and you could see essentially where the state ran into its budgetary problems with the, the price of oil crashing. And I think that was, what, 2015 or, or whatever. And you could see the test scores begin to slide there. And that's when we um, basically stopped uh, putting more money into education. So, I mean, less money doesn't help. Hello, East Anchorage. This is Alaska State House Representative Andrew Gray and East Anchorage Matters. The goal of this broadcast is to keep the constituents of Anchorage's Campbell Park, University Area, and Russian Jack neighborhoods abreast of the relevant happenings in the halls of government of our great state. Each episode will begin with a short legislative update, which I'll follow with a frank conversation with an Alaskan of interest. Today, that person is State Representative Jesse Sumner of Wasilla. But first, the update for today, Monday, the 6th of February, 2023. I gave my first floor speech this past week, and it was based on a conversation that I had had with a teacher who lives in our district, Janice Strickland. She has been teaching at Betty Davis East Anchorage High School since 1991, but she started her career in West Texas in 1973. Besides teaching Spanish and French, Janice is currently the head of the English department. I asked her about teacher turnover. As English department chair, I have the pleasure and the honor of working with a, a variety of teachers, some who've been with me, with us quite a while, others who are relatively new. But I'm losing two of my best this year. And one teacher was also my AP English student and uh, Spanish student in the 90s. And her daughter's graduating this year. She's also in my AP English class. And uh, she's moving. She's leaving Alaska. And she is homegrown Alaskan. But she's leaving because we have no retirement program. So she's going to Pennsylvania because there is more opportunity there. Now, please keep in mind... She has taught for us. She has been brilliant. She has excellent relationships with students. And we've, we've helped to train her. I mean, was, she was, she was good material anyway, but we've given her this training. She has been a very important part of our school. And now we lose her excellence, her contributions. She's leaving mm -hmm. and she probably won't come back because she's going for, uh, uh, Retirement. Now, I think uh, the other the other individual I'm losing this year, uh, lack of retirement also plays a role in his decision to leave. Mm. I do believe he also wants to take a break and he may come back to education. But he's another one of my excellent teachers. He came here as a first year teacher and we have we have helped him grow. We've shall we say we've cultivated very mm -hmm. fertile ground. Mm -hmm. But he's leaving us. And I think that if he finds something that offers him more financial security for now in the future, then he will not come back. I believe, and I hate to say this, but I believe I'm losing two more next year. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean those situations are identical. But I know that we we just do not offer these teachers uh, enough. In 2021, Bellwether Education Partners studied the teacher retirement plans of all 50 states. Alaska came in 43, scoring straight Fs in all categories investigated. Now, I believe it was in 2006 was the last year that we had re um, defined benefits retirement. Mm -hmm. And we do have a plan uh, that involves a 401k. I'm not familiar with it because mm -hmm. I'm part of the other plan. Right. But I know this, if 
I had come here and there were no retirement because there is a good retirement system in Texas. Right. From, I would not have stayed. Right. I would not have stayed. According to Money Magazine's 2021 reporting, public school teachers make on average 20% less than someone of similar education. But a major reason they make that sacrifice of the additional income is the promise of being taken care of in retirement. That's how Janice Strickland made her decision 50 years ago. But today, the lack of retirement benefits is driving good people away from the teaching profession in our state. And remember, teachers in Alaska do not earn Social Security. But if you give teachers a sound reason, good teachers will come Mm -hmm. and they will stay. I always breathe a sigh of relief when a teacher buys a home, a young teacher. I'm like, yes, you plan to make a commitment. You plan to be Mm -hmm. here with us. But you have to offer people something. And I'm just going to give this little anecdote. When I started teaching, I was 19 in the state of Texas. And then I turned 20. And I remember one of the teachers was retiring. And it was a small town, West Texas. And she was retiring after 45 years. And I was thinking, oh, yes, I can be just like her. I can retire in 45 years. And yes, I could retire now, be just fine. But I remember looking forward, knowing that everything was going to work out, that I was going to learn to be a good teacher. I was going to be a strong teacher. And in return for not having the highest salary as I would have had if I had chosen engineering, the exchange was that I would have a good retirement. Mm -hmm. And we have taken that away. Janice is passionate about what she does. She is the model teacher who knows that teaching is more than delivering a prescribed curriculum or getting her students to master a certain skill. It's about molding better citizens. I've always believed that a student may forget what I teach, but they won't forget the person I am. And therefore, we need to bring into this profession the people who care about young people, who really want to be here, who are not fearful about their future. Because no, that that youngster will always remember that you read Canterbury Tales, but they'll remember that one day when things were not going well, a teacher said, can I do something to help? How can I help you? Am I saying that all teachers need to be social workers? Absolutely not. But we want teachers who are kind, who are caring, and bottom line, who want to be here, who want to be with us. Janice's story inspired me for my floor speech. Here is the end of my special orders delivered on the House floor last week. In closing, Madam Speaker, investing in our schools stops the out-migration from our state. Investing in our schools grows our workforce. Investing in our schools grows our economy. Investing in our schools grows better parents. Investing in our schools grows better people. We must increase the BSA and return to a defined benefit plan for our teachers. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Now for the interview. Jesse Sumner is a lifelong Alaskan who is a career home builder in the Matanuska Susitna Valley, where he owns his own construction company with his brother. He served on the Matsu Borough Assembly and as vice mayor of the borough before being elected to the State House this last election cycle. He first ran for the Alaska State House in 2020, where he was narrowly defeated by the incumbent, Representative David Eastman. Because of redistricting just prior to the most recent election cycle, he found himself in an open seat that he successfully ran for. He is currently part of the Republican House majority, and I am so grateful to have him on the show today. Well, Jesse Sumner, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Where did you grow up? So I was 
born and raised in the uh, Matsu borough, you know, born at the old Palmer Hospital. Um, and my dad was a framing subcontractor for uh, Hagmeyer, um, and my mom was a geologist, went to UAF. And, um, and then later she became a real estate agent and my dad started building houses. So, you know, we, we moved all over, but a lot of times it would be just down the street. Uh, probably lived in 20 some odd houses growing up over, you know, 18 years. Um, so whatever spec was being built, if it didn't sell, well, that would probably be our new house, you know, and, uh, um, so yeah, lived all over the valley basically. And then, um, did you like moving that much? Uh, I mean, so I had, we had one childhood home in Brentwood that we stayed at for quite some time. And then when we moved, uh, that was pretty rough cause I had a lot of friends, but then after that, it kind of didn't matter too much, you know? And, um, Do you, as a adult now i mean do you uh, feel like that that childhood informs your feeling about staying in a home or not staying in a home or did you want to like not have a childhood like your like yours where you moved all the time or did you want or do you just not really care um well so i'd say my wife doesn't like moving much and you know i don't think we're going to be moving around too much but uh um yeah uh I didn't, I didn't really mind it too much growing up. Just the, the one move was a bit rough, but after that, um, I guess, you know, my, my kids have friends where they live right now and I wouldn't want to do that to them. So even though there's the, uh, the, uh, tax exemption for capital gains for two years and I am a builder. So it's, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, so you went into the family business, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So do you work for your dad? No, um, my brother and I bought him out, I think, in 2009, and we've been in business um, ourselves since then. Um, I don't know how old you are, but I would think 2009, you would have been pretty young. So I'm 38, and so in 2009, I was 25, I want to say, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's young to like buy your, bus- buy your own business. and Yeah, but- yeah. Yeah. Um, started out right at the pretty much at the bottom of the housing crash. And it's been, uh, you know, every year has been up since then because uh, I've had a pretty good run and the Valley builds a lot of houses. I think, you know, almost half the houses in the state are built in the Matsu borough. So why do you well. think Matsu is so good at building houses and the rest of the state isn't? Uh, well, we got a lot of land, which, you know, Anchorage and some places Sitka, you know, are kind of land constrained. We don't have a lot of, um, we don't have zoning or a building department. So there's really no regulatory restrictions that, um, you know, can sometimes slow things down and and add cost. So I'd say that's one factor. Um, there's, you know, the, the, a lot of folks that work or live in the Matsu commute to Anchorage. So, you know, we're the closest commute location besides Eagle river. Um, and just the cost of housing is, is considerably lower. So I think that's, can you talk a little bit about, um, codes for earthquakes and so there is code. So we, we do build houses to code, you know, even though people don't, (laughs) uh, so we, we build to the IRC, the international residential code. And, um, 
we do not have, um, what do you call it? A certificate of occupancy, which is what the um, municipality of Anchorage issues upon completion and inspection. But what we do have is a, um, God, I'm drawing a blank on what it's called, uh, PUR uh, 102, which is a summary of um, building inspections. So outside of the municipalities, uh, Palmer actually has a building department, but so outside of that, uh, basically through AHFC, private inspectors are hired. They do your, your building inspections to, you know, inspect that you are building to code and issue one of those at the end. And what that is, is it's just sort of been ad hoc uh, adopted, but AHFC requires it for their lending programs. And so all the other banks have essentially adopted that as well. And so that that's basically the check that ensures that houses are being built to code as well out in the Matsu. You cannot get financing on them. Now you can build whatever kind of Dr. Seuss house you want, but you'll not get financing on it. And so Roger, we so, essentially get to the same place, but with really no regulatory burden. Involved. Is it true that building a home in Anchorage is more expensive because the codes are stricter? Um, yes. To Well, it's not actually, uh, I would say, as a stricter code per se that they adds the cost, but it's the, it's actually working with the Anchorage building department is somewhat difficult. I built houses in, you know, like Washoe County and places like that. And Anchorage's building department is more difficult to work with than a lot of building departments down South. Like in, in, in other, you, you, where all do you build houses? Uh, well, so, Myself, just here in Alaska, but my dad actually so retired from here, but is building houses in Nevada. So, okay. Um, so he operates down there, and I've been involved in some of that. And, um, yeah. But, um, no, and, and then also um, Anchorage having municipality inspectors causes scheduling issues for inspections. You know, if you have, if it drags out the timeline for inspections then that adds cost. What do you think the logic is behind having a a municipality inspector rather than a private inspector? Um, so I think that the idea is that, um, that there not be a close relationship between the builder and the inspector. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're working for the third party, the municipality, um, I, I don't think that we've had that issue, even though the inspectors out in the Matsu are paid by, for, paid by the builder. Uh, AHFC has a lot of standards that they hold them to. And um, yeah, I, I, I do think you could do third-party inspections uh, in the municipality. And I think there was some talk about, about allowing that and it would substantially help the, uh, the issue out there. But also... Anchorage, uh, when you talk about earthquake codes, Anchorage has a lot of uh, poor soils, and um, that's going to be a bigger factor a lot of times than necessarily the construction is just the soil quality underneath the uh, structure. So, And whose call is it if, if say, somebody is very excited because they have this plot of land in Anchorage that they want to build a house on? 
um, that it has poor soils? Is it the builder's responsibility to say like, Hey, I can't build a house on this soil or I mean, like whose risk is it? Well, actually I don't even know if the Anchorage inspectors are inspecting soils. Um, so you could just build it there. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, in code, you know, it's all laid out. Right. Like what, what, yeah. But, um, you know, if it's peat, you should be Xing it all out and building up gravel and lifts. And, but, um, and I'm sure they do, but you know, there's like silty clays and stuff like that, that they might be building on that might be a little bit more questionable. So, so you served on the Matsu borough assembly. Yep. Um, for four years. I'm yeah. Deputy mayor for, I think the last one or two years. something. I mean, I live just down the road, but yeah. I get for our listeners. When we started this interview, I was like, so were you uh Wasilla city council or were you Matsu borough? Yeah. I mean, and I guess, can you explain like how you have a Palmer and a Wasilla city council, but a Matsu borough assembly and, how those bodies work together or don't. Well, yeah. So Anchorage is one unified right. municipality, but the Matsu borough is a second class borough with um, municipalities within it. Right. So Palmer's home rule and Wasilla, I want to say is like, I'm no expert, <laughs> you know, not, right. not home rule, but first class. I, I don't know. They're a municipality too, but a little bit different than Palmer. But essentially the uh, the cities have like police powers and health powers and, mm-hmm. and these are not things that the Matsu borough necessarily has as a second class borough. Mm-hmm. So we do not have uh, police powers. We could adopt police powers. We'd have to go to the ballot to do that. There's been some debate about that in the past and we don't have health power. So a lot of things that we do Sometimes we'll pass money through to the cities and have mm. them do things that they have the powers to do. Um, so what I'm hearing you say is that actually, in some regards, the city council slash mayors of the individual cities have more powers than the borough assembly. Um, yeah, I mean, more more powers in, in what they're authorized to do. I mean the Matsu borough sits um, assembly sits over the whole area. Right. But we don't have uh, the cities have planning powers within their, their boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And I know Sarah Palin was on the Wasilla city council before she was mayor. Um, Why did you decide to do borough as opposed to city council? Uh, Well, I didn't live in the city limits at the time. So that, (laughs) Was part of it. Although I used to, um, I think it was 2012 or 2013, I was on the Wasilla Planning Commission. But um, I was more more interested. So the, the boundaries of the municipalities of Wasilla and Palmer are quite small. Um, and, you know, I, I generally, I mean, like for my business, I build houses throughout the borough. Right. So lots of people live outside those two <laughs> yeah, cities. Yeah, city the, the vast majority of people live outside of the cities. Interesting. So. Yeah. Um, so why did you run for not super awesome? Um, well, actually, uh, you know, I was complaining, uh, to somebody, um, I think it was actually, uh, Rob Yunt who later then also got on the assembly about some, um, proposed regulations. And, uh, 
you know, and, and taxes and, and that sort of thing. And they said, well, why don't you just run? And I said, well, maybe I will. <laughs> and so I did. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, beat an incumbent, uh, and it was a lot of work and it was on there ever since. So I guess, yeah, complaining about what was going on and somebody told me I should do something about it. So I did. <laughs> Were you able to do something about it once you were elected? Uh, yeah, more or less. I mean, we've, uh, cut taxes, uh, you know, pretty consistently, uh, although we've been helped by rising assess, uh, appraisals, um, certainly. Um, and, um, I rolled back what I thought was some needless, needless, needless regulation. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's generally been a success. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty proud of how the Matsu borough handled the whole COVID pandemic. You know, I thought we, we, uh, managed pretty well, very little restrictions on people, not substantially worse than anybody else. But, you know, as uh, the city of Wasilla sales tax receipts, uh, uh, reached, you know, record high during that because a lot of folks from Anchorage were coming out to have, breakfast or you know oh i'll push back a little <laughs> bit on this um so i work for the alaska va and yeah. i i work i did work part-time at the wasilla location mm -hmm. um this is an anecdotal report i'm not looking at any data but i will say that there was a lot of covid among the veterans in Wasilla and many who did not do well and had long-term COVID. And so I'll just say as a medical provider, I would say that uh, COVID hit the Matsu Valley pretty hard and there were definitely health consequences to folks in Matsu. I, full disclosure, we, I had patients in, in Anchorage who had COVID. I had one who died. I mean, like, you know, it was, I'm not saying that Anchorage, because it had uh, stricter uh, protocols, necessarily prevented, um, you know, all the health consequences to, to COVID. But definitely there are folks in Wasilla who um, got COVID and didn't do very well. Yeah. Well, certainly I know I know a few folks that, that died, actually. Uh, my excavator uh died of COVID and my mechanic. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a bad thing. I, I don't know that honestly though, that any preventative measures at the borough level would have impacted things in any measurable way. I mean, I have not looked at statistics of one area versus the other, but I think, uh, essentially it was going to play out the same way regardless and it, it is important to to keep you know an economy functioning and that's um you know throughout human history we've had a number of pandemics and um the only the, the one thing that you know is absolutely essential for human beings to to live in anywhere near the standard that we, we have is that we have a functioning economy. You know, kids can go to school, people go to work, go, you know, grocery store and whatnot. And, um, that the world could not carry seven, 8 billion people without 
you know, free trade and a functioning economy. So it's, I, I, so I guess I, I maybe have a, um, a fundamental disagreement about the, uh, the benefits of the public, uh, COVID restriction implementations. Now the vaccine, I think was, was beneficial and, you know, and certainly people in high risk groups, should definitely have gone and availed themselves of that. And it's unfortunate that it became so political, but, um, I short of, um, absolute quarantines where nobody can come or go. I don't know that public health measures to control spread through, restricting business operating hours and things of the like have ever really been particularly effective. This is not where I expected. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I didn't know. And I don't, I don't want to like belabor the point, but something that I've wanted to say for a long time is I think, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and people can look back and say, you know, having people wear, you know, there was a time where people could like put a gator over their face. Like they were like, well, just put a gator, like, cause you did it in the military. We're like, just put your gator over your yeah. mouth and nose. And we since learned that that was actually not really an effective mask, that that didn't really work. But I think what people forget is in that moment, you know, based on the limited information at the public health officials fingertips, mm-hmm. it seemed like a reasonable restriction. It seemed like a reasonable ask. And we later found out that it did nothing or, or, or very little and um, that you needed a N95, for example. Right. Um, but again, I think to, to, to look back and say, well, what we did um, really hurt the economy, didn't prevent spread of disease or however they want to argue it. I think people were doing the best they could in that moment. And, um, you know, like like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, no, I mean, it, you know, looking back, I mean, it, there was a lot of uncertainty over, you know, how bad it would be or could be, and different folks did different things, and it, it could have been that Anchorage maybe had the more appropriate implementation. I think didn't really turn out that way. It could have though, um, but yeah, I mean, I so. I get. I guess not to beat a dead horse, but the the implementation of of passive safety measures like masking is sometimes I think counterproductive because it it discourages people to actively um, uh, avoid risk. Right. So at, at one time or another, I think people were very concerned, um, almost to the point where when the state did its it's shut down, you know, essential business thing. I, I don't even know that it was necessary at that point because nobody was really, or at least the amount of people that were going out and or choosing to go out in public was already substantially reduced because there was a huge concern. Um, now, if you put, if people become comfortable with going out in public that, you know, are in a high risk group or should be concerned and actually everybody was concerned at the time but if you put a cloth mask over your face and think that that passive safety measure protects you then you don't actively avoid risk as much 
So I guess this goes back to like, you know, I mean, somebody had said I got a lot of seatbelt tickets, right? And I said, well, I drive better without my seatbelt on. And, you know, so. And, yeah, and no, I remember that tweet. <laughs> so um, you don't wear seatbelts. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I don't wear seatbelts. I would say I often don't wear a seatbelt. I think I, I actually do believe that I, I drive better. And not, that's not to say that I don't think passengers should be seatbelted or, you know, if you want to wear a seatbelt, I think that's the right thing for you to do. Well, um, what if I don't want to wear a seatbelt, but I do it because it's the law? Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a $15 fine and you can pay it to the, uh, the fire station. And, uh, <laughs> I, I remember growing up, my grandmother didn't wear a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I remember being in the car and, and, you know, it was just an accepted thing is that we called her Mima. Mima doesn't wear a seatbelt. Um, and you know, that's just the way it was. Um, and I bring that up because people think that the implementation, uh, implementation of seatbelt laws went without a fight, but that's not true. Uh, there were lots of folks who, saw it as a restriction of their freedoms and that if they wanted to take the risk of dying in a car accident, that was their right to take it. Well, well, I mean, I think that there could be some argument made that it's actually increased um, pedestrian fatalities, the the implementation of seatbelt laws. How so? Um, You know, people... I, I think I have seen some statistics on it. I didn't I know, prepare I anything here, but share those statistics because yeah. so you think people drive crazier because they feel uh, in the same way that somebody wearing a mask will go out in public and, and put themselves at risk. Some wearing a seatbelt will drive more recklessly because they have the false sense of security that because they have a seatbelt on, yeah. that they are safer. Yeah. I think if you had a five point harness and a helmet and, 50 airbags surrounding you and and whatnot you're going to drive a little bit uh more reckless than if you had a giant spike in your steering wheel pointing right at you straight up <laughs> i drive more safely because i'm so afraid of that airbag going off yeah those uh, things yeah anyway. so i don't know um i'd be interesting interested to see the studies if you can produce those i want to i do want to talk about in the middle of covid I believe is when you ran for the house the first time. Yep. Um, was it because of COVID that you ran for the house? No, no. Tell us why you ran for the house first time. Uh, I didn't feel that, uh, the representative I was running against, um, was really very effective. Um, you know, I, and and I still really don't. <laughs> well, what is an effective legislator to you? Right. So, um, you know, one, one thing, um, I would say my, when, when I was young, my, my parents had some, some difficulty with the IRS. Um, you know, my dad was young at the time and, and was working as a framing subcontractor and didn't have the money to pay his taxes and just figured he wouldn't file. And, you know, so then the IRS comes and they're going to take, take the house. Right. And, uh, um, he actually, and this is, this was during the, the housing crash in the eighties. So there really wasn't a lot of work. And, um, my mom talked to representative Don Young and, um, he actually got the IRS to get them a payment plan. So, you know, they're still paying it, but they, they stopped the process where they were going to take their house and take 
what little money they had in their their bank accounts and <clears throat> and so you know I think one important thing uh, for representatives to do is is that kind of constituent work you know when there's people that are you know um, facing hard times and and the government is kind of putting their thumb on them that you know you you try to help them out um, did you have evidence that you're representative at the time wasn't doing that kind of constituent work? Um, well, so I don't know that he doesn't per se. Uh, I don't, I, I, I've talked to him about things, um, road projects and, and such, and it, it didn't seem to be a high priority of his. Um, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, the Matsuburo is growing. We need road money. Um, you know, when there's capital project requirements and, um, you know, I wasn't particularly happy that no Matsuburo house representative had been in the majority for, I think at that point it was four years and then still they weren't. So six years. And, um, you know, I think, Matsuburo deserves a seat at the table, representation, and uh, you know, we have growing population, so uh, some, somewhat of an equitable shift. Y'all have a lot of them at the table right now. Yeah, so uh, five of six, I suppose. And, um, yeah. You didn't win that election. I did not win. It was, I think, a hundred and something votes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that would be the primary, right? So it, before ranked choice voting, it was essentially if you win the primary you won the and election. the Matsu, you yeah. win the election. It's a little different now. So I, I still didn't win the primary this time, but I did go on to win the general election. So that was... Um, I guess by being only within 100 votes, was that encouraging to you? I, I'm asking basically how it, you had won your election for Matsu Borough Assembly. Yeah. Um, but then you, so you kind of have, you can speak about winning an election and losing an election. I mean, was it, was it rough to lose that primary or was it expected or what were your feelings? Uh, it was rough. You know, you, you always think, Oh, what if I did, did this different or I should have done more of that? You know, I mean, uh, I won the precincts. I door knocked, but of course it was during COVID. So at some point my wife was like, I just really am not comfortable with you door knocking. And I also didn't think it was maybe the most appropriate thing to do. Um, so yeah, so I won Willow and I won, you know, essentially the places where I door knocked and I lost the places I didn't. And my opponent had a, a number of folks from out of state come up and door knock the entire district. So, um, wow. So, yeah, that was essentially what happened. Well, congratulations on winning. Well, you didn't have to run against that opponent. No. So uh, after redistricting, um, I was redistricted into an empty house seat. And, um, yeah, I won. I had three three other Republicans running against me. Uh, narrowly lost the primary but of course with ranked choice, mm-hmm. just everyone, everyone advances yeah. to the general and, and, and I won that. Do you like ranked choice? Uh, so I think that it can be a positive thing in that it doesn't lock up things for, 
Um, you know, I think things have gotten really polarized with the party primaries essentially determining who would be the winner. So you have a, a smaller portion of the electorate essentially selecting who who are going to be the representatives. And so under ranked choice, um, you know, at least for the state level races, you're going to get a larger portion of the electorate deciding who those representatives are. And, and I think it, it could result in a more representative selection of, of, of people elected. Um, you know, I think time will, will tell on how that all works out, but I think it'll be a little less polarizing in Juneau. You hired one of your opponents as your staff. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of folks who ran, uh, not a lot, there's a few folks who ran for office and lost and are currently working as staffers. You're the only one I know who actually hired an opponent. So can you just talk a little bit about what led to that decision and, and how that's working out? Well, yeah. So I think Mr. Menard really cares about the Valley. I mean, he's Mr. Valley and uh, <laughs> he's got, he's got a lot of heart for it. And um, I, you know, I'm, uh, I wanted to give him the opportunity to help out in, in doing the things that he campaigned on and, you know, helping me do the things that I had, campaigned had on. y'all been friends, did, did y'all, were y'all friends during the campaign uh, did y'all, or did y'all campaign against each other? So I don't know that we campaigned against each other per se. I mean, I really didn't do a heck of a lot of campaigning and I don't think he, re- he didn't really run any negative campaign on me uh i mean my my campaigning essentially i i did do one radio ad i think and uh some facebook uh ads and it was just essentially you know this is what i did on the borough assembly cut taxes um you know stop some regulation um you know when when i I was first elected to the assembly we were facing a pretty significant budget uh deficit because the uh, state had cut the school bond debt reimbursement, which of course the Matsu borough is the uh, per capita, um, probably the the largest uh, beneficiary of that school bond debt reimbursement because we had had a three uh, hundred some million dollar uh, bond package that the governor actually, when he was a president of the school board, had had voted for and it was implemented, and we did need those schools, but. Um, you know, so we, we, but we're still paying on that. Um, so it was pretty substantial hit when that school bond debt reimbursement was cut. Um, so, you know, we, we had to navigate through that. Um, and, and I think we did a pretty good job of it. You know, we didn't go crazy cutting staff positions and whatnot. We just sort of capped, uh, growth of government, um, but we did prioritize uh, EMS, so um, we we added some full time EMS staff. But uh, we had to cap growth of government for a couple of years, and um, and now I think we're in a pretty good position. We actually just had a uh, sixty five million dollar road bond package that was passed uh, not this year, but the year before, and um, we're going to be able to construct all those projects without selling any bonds. So just well, speaking of schools, since you brought it up, do you have an opinion on um, 
the current state of education in Alaska, what could be done? Boy, I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of people have opinions. I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know any silver bullet, you know, that's going to fix education in the state of Alaska. I mean, certainly less money isn't going to help. Right. Um, I, I hear a lot of people saying, mm-hmm. well, you can't give them more money because it's a failing system. And, um, you know, but, but I look back and I, and, and, and test scores are not the best metric, right? But you, you can look back and you can see essentially where the state ran into its budgetary problems with the, the price of oil crashing. And I think that was what, 2015 or, or whatever. And you can see the test scores begin to slide there. And that's when we um, basically stopped uh, putting more money into education. So, I mean, less money doesn't help, obviously, uh, but, you know, there are some structural problems probably that that could also be addressed. So I would say probably need to properly fund education, but you might look into, you know, I mean, there's been, I hate to say a diversion of resources, but certainly administrative functions have grown faster than than actual teaching positions and, and, you know. But I think that's a, a nationwide thing. A lot of people want to say, well, if you give more money to the school district, you need more accountability. Well, to me, accountability sounds like even more administrator positions, right? So I, you know, um, I, I'd prefer to see those decisions made locally more. Um, so I, I generally lean towards sort of block funding things, you know, pass the money to the local school board or to the local government, let them make the decisions. Um, they're probably going to make generally speaking and not always, sometimes they'll make terrible decisions, but generally I think they'll make better decisions there where, where they live than, than us here in Juneau or, or especially than people in Washington, DC. Right. So. Cause you have kids. Yeah. How many kids do you have? I've got three kids. So eight, five and four. So two are in school. Two are in school, and mm-hmm. one will be not yet next year, but the year after. Mm-hmm. So. And are you happy with their school? Yeah, so they go to, uh, well, I'm not going to say the, the school name, <laughs> on it, but they, they go to a Title I elementary, public elementary school out there. And, you know, I, I, I generally think that our schools are actually... I mean, I, I know everyone says they're terrible, but I think that they're, they do a pretty decent job. I wish class sizes were smaller, you know, that's a kind of a funding thing though. And, uh, but you know, uh, a big thing I think is parental engagement, you know, and, and not everybody has the, the time or resources, you know, necessarily that, that we do, but, um, you know, allowing parents to have more engagement, I think can improve outcomes as well. And, uh, yeah. Well, Representative Jesse Sumner, we're getting towards the end of our time. A question I like to ask at the end is if you have a book you'd like to recommend to our listeners. It doesn't have anything to do with anything we talked about, but the prize. Yeah, read the prize by, uh, I think it's Daniel Yergin. It's a good book. Why do you like it? Uh, just history and... and um, yeah, I guess tell, tell for our listeners who don't know, what's the book about? Oil. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a good read. I'll just say that. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much for coming on today. And I'll uh, see you in a few minutes. Yeah. Thank you to Maya Norong for making this podcast listenable. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. 
To finish off the episode today, I'd like to play the end of Alaska Supreme Court Chief Justice Daniel Winfrey's farewell address that he gave to a joint session of the legislature last week. It was an amazing speech, and I was so grateful to hear it in person. Enjoy. I am one of those children. Just a kid from Fairbanks. Teenage dream of sometime being in a position to make important decisions for the state of Alaska. And 15 years ago, to my delight and surprise, I suddenly found myself one of five people heading a branch of government of the state of Alaska. I have given it everything I have to give, and I have loved every minute of every day. To all of you other children of Alaska, young and old, live your lives, live your dreams, make Alaska an even better place for everybody. It's been uh, an incredible honor to serve. It's been an incredible honor and a privilege to speak with you last year and this year. And so to all Alaskans on behalf of the nearly 800 Alaska court system employees, farewell. <laughs> 